Good morning, it's so great to see you here today. My name is Michael and I serve with our creative team. This week is CareFest, this Saturday. If you haven't yet found your project, jump online right now, wheatonbible.org slash carefest. You can find a project that matches your abilities. This is a great family event and a chance to reconnect with your church outdoors. If you're on campus today, you can stop in the atrium to pick up a shirt just like this. And if you're online, you can pick up your shirt on Tuesday between nine and five or on Saturday morning during the kickoff rally, both at our West Chicago campus. Please be praying this week for our teams and that God's love would be felt by those we're serving. Next up, we wanna celebrate new members in our church. See you at CareFest. Well, good morning and welcome, welcome all of you to Wheaton Bible Church, those of you watching online and those of you that are here with us um, on our uh, different campuses. We are thrilled and we are praying that God will use our services to speak to you. Uh, periodically during the course of our church year, we welcome new members. We can't do this in person so effectively during COVID. So you have some pictures on the screens behind me of people that are joining the church today. There's about, I believe, around 40 uh, people that are becoming members of our church this Sunday. Uh, these are people that have gone through our, our new members uh, class, I guess is the best way to say it. Uh, they've made some commitments, some agreements, and support of our Constitution in terms of their uh, ongoing participation in the church, like healthy members of uh, churches do. And we are so excited uh, to welcome them to Wheaton Bible Church uh, today. I wish they were all on the platform with me, but you can see them. So would you join me in welcoming them? Way to go, guys. Father, bless uh, these families, bless these men and women to your glory and to your honor, and we pray in Jesus' great name, amen. Amen. As we come to God's house today, some of us are joyful, some of us are hurting, some of us are distracted. Maybe you're like me and you just want to love God more. And today we, talk to, we start a series on God's love for us and our love for each other. We're looking forward to that today. We start with a fabulous reminder of Jesus' love for us from Hebrews 4 this morning. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I need to hear that this morning. Let's stand and sing together. Come thou fount 
please be seated. What amazing words, Savior and friend. And I would be so bold to say to you that to the extent you grasp that, that Jesus is my Savior and Jesus is my friend, you will live a different day today. You will live a different week this week. Savior, friend, thank you, Lord. So, Father, we come to you this morning and we worship you as the one who infinite love and mercy sent Jesus that he might live this perfect life, die a perfect death, be raised in perfect power from the dead, that the moment we believe the King of kings and the Lord of lords, God himself in Jesus becomes our Savior and friend. And so, Father, we want to take a moment now and come to you And we come to you in humility and brokenness and we confess to you, Father, that we continue to fall short in your Son. Our hearts are easily distracted. Our words are often unpleasing to you. And our minds, while our minds are scattered and in a thousand different places, Father, we want to appreciate, we want to behold. We want to see the beauty and the majesty of our friend Jesus. His tenderness, mercy, compassion, gentleness, and humility. And we confess to you that we are frankly just too busy. Too uptight, too distracted. And in this moment of confession, would you speak to us? Would you forgive us for our lack of love, hope, joy? And we pray, God, that you will give us a spirit of confession. I think of the words of Isaiah, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Would that be true? That we might increasingly behold the wonder of a Savior and a friend who gave everything that we might find forgiveness and acceptance, significance, adoption, and life eternal. And I pray in Jesus' amazing name. Amen. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. 
Please be seated. Well, good morning again. Welcome again. And it's time for us to look into God's inerrant, infallible, life-changing Word. What a privilege to gather together with hundreds of thousands of churches around the world to worship God, to study His Word, to listen for a word from God that we might increasingly be uh, the people of God. And today, we begin a seven-week series on love. We're calling it Love Unfiltered. It's a seven-week series on 1 Corinthians 13. There's 13 verses in chapter 13. And it's so very practical, so very important. After all, chapter 13 is not only the greatest description on love in the Bible, it's the greatest description on love in human history. You see, it's love, not fame, not fortune, That is your greatest opportunity in life. Your love is your greatest opportunity in life. And on the other hand, uh, your lack of love will be your life's greatest omission. And that's because according to God's word, love is the primary way we are like our loving Savior. And the absence of love is the way we are the least like Jesus. Years ago, society realized that baby orphanages just didn't work. Too many babies were dying in orphanages, getting sick. They would grow up with all sorts of emotional, social, uh, psychological problems. Why? Because from the moment a baby is born, a baby needs to be held, hugged, talked to, attended to. Whenever that baby is awake, and that couldn't take place in orphanages. And so infant orphanages around the world went away. You know, love is the primary way your relationships, your friendships. It's a primary way your your marriage, your, your family, it's a primary way our church will thrive. And the absence of love is why those relationships die. Love is primary according to God's word. It's not just the music of heaven, it's the music of earth. It doesn't just heal a broken world. Love is what heals a broken heart. 
And today I can't think of a better passage as we begin this series over these next seven weeks than 1 Corinthians 13 to hear a word from God on this critical, essential subject. So what I want to do today is I want to begin by introducing this series by looking at merely the first three verses in chapter 13. And I want to do three things in these three verses. I want to talk about God, I want to talk about the Corinthians, and I want to talk about you. God, the Corinthians, and you. So would you stand with me as we read together from God's holy word beginning in verse 1. Paul is writing, Paul is writing under inspiration. These are the words God, the Spirit, is directing the apostle to write. And Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. You may be seated. So let's begin with God. Christianity teaches us that at the center of the universe is not a single person God, but a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who has eternally existed in perfect, ceaseless, selfless love within the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit adore each other. They delight in each other. Uh, they honor and treasure each other. And this is so important for us as we start because what it means is God is the source of love. God is the definition of love. God is the model of love. And heaven is a world of love. And therefore creation, everything you see is the overflow of divine love. God's love, therefore, is always outgoing. It's eternally other-centered. It's compassionate. It's most vividly revealed in the beauty of creation. It's most vividly demonstrated in the advent of Jesus Christ, who became a man that he might go to the cross and die in the place for our sins. That is our lack of love. And Jesus has come that we might learn to love. So let me show you a couple passages uh, that unpack in some brief ways this incredible divine love. Look at Psalm 103. I love this passage. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Friends, this is the Old Testament. 
Do you see? Contrary to what the world says, the God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament is not hard, he's not harsh, he's not aloof, he's tender, he's forgiving, he's compassionate. In the New Testament, we see incredible linkage between the divine love of God and the advent of Jesus. So in this familiar verse, for God so loved the world, now so means in an infant way, in an eternal way, in a matchless way, in a perfect way, for God so infinitely loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to love the world. And here Paul expresses that by talking about saving the world through Jesus. Now when you read these two passages, Old Testament and New Testament, other passages from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, uh, what the Bible tells us is the essence of God is not power, it's love. love. And shouldn't that be true in our lives? I mean, who is Jesus? What have we sung? He's Savior, friend. May God, the Spirit, use us in that way in the lives of the people around us. The essence of God isn't power. The essence of, uh, of God is love. And love in the Bible is not merely an abstract or distant uh, concern for another. Uh, love is a disposition. It's the disposition of your heart where another is dear to you. It's a disposition of your heart where increasingly more and more people are dear to you. And the good news of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, the moment we believe and we're adopted into God's forever family, we become dear to God. Dear to the living God. As a father has compassion on his children... I mean, think of a, a mother with her baby. Think of uh, newlyweds and, and how wonderful and fresh their love is. Or, or, or think of a wife of 65 years sitting next to the bedside of her dying husband. And then multiply those times infinity. And we begin to get close to how dear and how precious you are as a child of God in the eyes of your loving brother, Father. Now, why do I start this way? Why in this chapter do I start with the love of God? And the reason I start with God in this series, and we'll continue to come back to God in this series, is because it's an only in seeing the depth of God's love Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 3 in his prayer, uh, how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God. But it's only in you and I seeing this radical depth of God's love that Jesus is our Savior, that Jesus is our, our, our friend, that you and I will ever become loving. Ever. 
You see, love doesn't make sense. Now, here I'm making a cultural comment. Love doesn't make sense if God doesn't exist. Love doesn't make any sense if there isn't a loving God. Uh, Sacrificing yourself for somebody else. Disadvantaging yourself for the advantage of another. Good definition of love. Disadvantaging yourself for the advantage of another. It uh, doesn't make any sense if God doesn't exist or, or, or God isn't loving. Uh, but if God does exist and God is loving, then love suddenly becomes the most important thing in life. Isn't this why Jesus tells us the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind? And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. Love, love, love. Isn't this why if you look at the last verse in chapter 13, Paul tells us here in 1 Corinthians that it's not faith, it's not hope, but love that's the greatest virtue. 1 Corinthians 13, and we'll unpack this in the weeks to come, is ultimately a description of divine love. And we can't look at this horizontally. We've got to look at it vertically. It's, a, it's also a, a description of uh, uh, people like you and me, ordinary people, uh, common people, people who have a, a lot of pain, people who have a lot of hurts, a lot of confusion, a lot of hassle and stress in life. It, it, it's a description of, of what these kind of people like us look like who have been ravished by the love of God in Jesus. And my point in beginning with God is we can't get there. You cannot get to this life of love unless you are a person that is blown away by and continually basks in and clings to the radical, infinite, sacrificial, surrendering, humble love of God. And I want this for you. I want you to so see God that the Spirit takes this series and opens your life and exposes to you, like I have these areas in my life where you're not loving, and shows you how you can be increasingly loving. So that's God. Now let's turn to the Corinthians. This is where this gets interesting, and I'm going to say some things some of you may have never heard before. But let me say the obvious. 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 4. We didn't read that. I didn't want to, didn't have the time this morning. 1 Corinthians 13 is a favorite passage for weddings. And it was only women that said that. Did you notice that? (laughs) What's that about? Men, where are we? And it should be a favorite passage, right? But here's the deal. When we read this passage in places like weddings, other places, I recently was asked to use this as my text for a funeral service. But when we read these verses out loud, sometimes we fail to appreciate the backstory. We miss the 12 chapters that come before chapter 13, the three chapters that come after. Because the reality is chapter 13 is part of a sad story. A sad story of a broken, dysfunctional people. A broken, dysfunctional church. 
So chapter 13, instead of being words of comfort, are actually words of rebuke and warning. Now, let me explain. Corinth, and here I'm talking about the city, was one of the biggest cities in the first century world. It was a commercial powerhouse. It was a business center, an urban city in southern Greece. And it was notoriously corrupt. Sex saturated. But because of the commercial horsepower, it was full of wealthy, brilliant movers and shakers who, who knew how to make money and loved making money. And it was said that you didn't come to live in Corinth. You came uh, to get wealthy in Corinth. You, you came to do in Corinth. And, and so Corinth had this amazingly talented pool of people. But yet the city, the culture was so notoriously corrupt that the noun Corinth uh, was uh, turned into a verb to Corinthianize, which meant to live life without morals. Now, a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity uh, to co-lead a, a tour of Paul's first missionary journey in, in Turkey and, and Greece, and it was just a fabulous tour. And Rhonda and I found ourselves one morning standing in the ancient ruins, first century Corinth, where the archaeology is so supportive and confirming of the Bible. I mean, they've discovered a first century church in these ruins, and we're standing right there. And our, this woman was absolutely brilliant. She was a slash historian, archaeologist, and she was explaining all the, the wonder of ancient court to us. And then she spent a whole lot of time telling us about how Corinth was a center of sex trafficking and all the evils around it. But God is a God of love, right? Oh, okay. God is a God of love, right? Right, we, we, we know that. So if you travel through the book of Acts and you come to Acts chapter 18, what you discover in Acts chapter 18 is the apostle Paul is in Corinth. And God, in effect, says to Paul, he shows up and he speaks to Paul and says, Paul, I want you to park it here in Corinth. <clears throat> I want you to stay. So Paul stays for a year and a half. Because God says, I want you to plant a church or maybe a network of churches. Because I have my people here in this needy, corrupt city and I love them. And so Paul stayed and Paul planted a, a church and maybe that's the church where Rhonda and I were standing. We don't know for sure. But what God said to Paul is, I love these people. And they came to Christ. But I want you to see earlier in 1 Corinthians what Paul says about them. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither will the sexually immoral, or I, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
And now notice verse 11. This is my point. And such were some of you, Paul says. Now don't be alarmed. A lot of those descriptors describe me before I came to Christ. And my point is that the Corinthians, uh, before they came to Christ, were not nice people. They were not generally moral uh, people. I certainly wasn't. And others point out, and here this gets so fascinating to me, that the church in Corinth was unique among Paul's churches. Because on the one hand, it was the most talented church. On the other hand, it was the most troubled church. I mean, it was made up of these brilliant, successful people who could draw a crowd, who could get things done, just like we see in the urban centers today around the world. Uh, the urban centers are a magnet for highly capable, uh, competent people like downtown Chicago. But on the other hand, these people were deeply troubled. I mean, you go back to the beginning of chapter 1, the beginning of this letter. And Paul doesn't start soft. He begins right away rebuking the Corinthians for their elitism, for their divisiveness, or for saying, I like this one leader, but I don't like this other preacher. And I'm going to listen to him, but I'm not going to have anything to do with this other guy. Then we come to chapter 3. Paul rebukes the Corinthians for their jealousy, for their worldliness. In chapter 4, for their extreme arrogance. That's what happens when you become successful. You get to chapters 5 and 6. And Paul is continuing to rebuke the Corinthians. I mean, the letter is one rebuke after another, uh, rebuking them in 5 and 6 for their uh, lawsuits. These guys were suing each other for their sexual sin. And then throughout the rest of the book, uh, the way they corrupted communion, can you imagine? Abused spiritual gifts, cheated. And I say all this because when we understand this, as we come to the first three verses, we begin to get a picture of what was going on. So look at verse 1. Apparently there were a lot of people, highly gifted people, who spoke in tongues. We go to verse 2. Apparently there were a lot of people, highly gifted people, who had uh, the ability, the gift of spiritual gift of prophecy, declaring the truth, declaring God's word, people that could unravel mysteries, people that had knowledge, uh, people that didn't just have ordinary faith, but exceptional faith. And what we see in verses 1 and 2 is these are not just ordinary spiritual gifts. These are exceptional, extraordinary uh, spiritual gifts. I mean, here it's the faith that moves mountain. That's visionary faith. That's leadership faith. Paul is talking here about uh, leadership gifts. That's why in the previous chapter, chapter 12, he talks about these extraordinary gifts and why he'll return to them in, in chapter 14. So apparently Corinth was Paul's most gifted church. Highly gifted highly troubled. These were attractive people. When these guys stood up and speak, when they uh, taught a Bible study, when they had a small group in their house, uh, they always drew a crowd. But then we come to verse 3. 
And apparently there were people in Corinth, if Paul's not speaking hypothetically, apparently uh, there were people in Corinth uh, that were exceedingly generous, sacrificially so, uh, that endured hardship for the sake uh, of the gospel. But remember what Paul says in these first three verses, and we see it here in verse 3. Paul says in in verse 1, man, if you can do all sorts of things, if you have all sorts of success, no matter how big your Bible study, no matter how big your church, no matter the friends that tell you how great you are, without love, you're like a hollow resounding gong. The gong Uh, that was sounded in the idol temples after an idol worshiper performed an act of worship towards his or her idol. And Paul is saying, you're no different without love. Then in verse 2, he says, you can have all these gifts, prophecy, faith that moves mountains. Uh, But if you're not loving, he says, you are nothing. And look what he says in verse 3. You can do all these things. These are all, those are virtues. Those are incredible things. But you gain nothing if love is absent in your life. Paul is dropping a bomb. He is saying you can be all these things and not be a Christian. Paul is warning the Corinthians to get their priorities straight. Now, Paul is not against success. Paul is not against spiritual gifts. He spoke in tongues. He had the gift of prophecy. He had the gift of knowledge. I mean, who endured more hardship for the gospel than the apostle Paul? Paul is saying talent without character, height without heart, gifts without grace is a big zero in the kingdom of God. And you, Corinthians, examine your heart. Because if the first three verses mean anything, it means that the Corinthians failed to understand, appreciate, and live lives of love. And Paul is saying, I don't want that for any of you. And honestly, often we're way too similar to the Corinthians. There's so many moments in my life where I'm a Corinthian. So many moments in yours where you are. Now, please, don't misunderstand what I'm uh, saying. I am not, I am not saying don't read this passage of weddings. Women, okay? Uh, That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is this is not merely a cushy, soft love poem that Paul wrote one day when he was sitting outside with a Starbucks and it was beautiful out and he had these um, amazing feelings. No, Paul is exposing our tendency to live for ourselves even in ministry, even in, in, in our churches. 
So if you're jealous, and he talks about jealousy, if you're arrogant, if you struggle with anger and anxiety, all the things the Corinthians did, and if along the way you're interested in the hype and the big and, and the, the splash, then you know what's happened? Your ministry is just about you. Life is just about you. And that's the danger of being highly gifted. That's a danger of abundant blessings and success. And I want to say to you, if I'm talking to you, you need to examine and see whether or not you really are in the faith. If you really do know Jesus. I mean, didn't Jesus say the same thing in Matthew chapter 7? This is the Sermon on the Mount. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, in your name perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Isn't this illustrated in the life of Jesus' disciple Judas? I mean, Judas participated in the miracles. Judas participated in the ministry of Jesus. The disciples cast out demons. Uh, Maybe Judas had the ability to do some of these things. Uh, We don't know. But what we do know is that Judas experienced all that, but he never gave his heart to Jesus. And he betrayed Jesus, and he was condemned to hell. Paul is saying, Corinthians, be careful. Your gifts can crush God's grace. And so let me illustrate it this way. Gifts, talents, you know, abilities, success, blessings, all this external stuff, nothing wrong with it, but they can be like nice clothes or like really nice jewelry. They can adorn your body, but they will never change your heart spiritually. Um, Supernatural change, gospel change always leads to a moral life. But you can live a moral life, you can live a church life, and never be supernaturally changed. So now I come to my conclusion. Let me talk about you. Actually, I want to talk about two different groups of people that emerge here. This isn't original with me, but but I've tweaked it significantly. And so first I want to begin by talking to the King Saul's among us. And by that I mean uh, you people that have some wonderful gifts, have had some great experiences, and you know it. I want to remind you that King Saul was the first king in ancient Israel. He was a man with extraordinary potential, a man with extraordinary gifts. Uh, The Old Testament tells us he was tall and he was handsome. He was a man's man, a leader's leader, and all of Israel looked up to him. He was the perfect guy to be the king with all the potential in the world, as I just said. But he gets into the crush and the pressure of being the king, and he's struggling with jealousy, and some things are going on in his dark heart, and he ignores God, and he disobeys God repeatedly, and Saul ends up committing suicide. Huge gifts, no heart. Highly talented, terribly troubled. 
And Saul is an Old Testament illustration of what Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians 13. And so I want to say, you who are gifted, you who are successful, man, be careful. It's easy to attach our identity, to fix our identity to our circumstances, to say, wow, look how God's blessing me. Look at this ministry. Uh, Look what I'm doing. And to begin to think God loves me because of what I do, not because of who he is and what he has done for me in his son. And I want to say, you know you'll be you're in trouble if you're neglecting your prayer life. If you're sitting in judgment on others, if you're sitting in judgment on the church, if you're distancing yourself from the church, if you harbor grudges, if you just see yourself as better, um, and there's not a devotional life, you're not striving to lay hold of the living God, then you are in danger like the Corinthians were in danger. And I want to invite you to lay hold of the majesty and the beauty of the love of God in Jesus. Now, or let let me add, lest you become a noisy gong. And at the end of your life, you discover you were nothing. Now, the second group I want to speak to are the Gideons among us. Uh, Those of you that feel like, you know, I'm really not that gifted and I don't have that much going for me. Now, Gideon in the Old Testament was the antithesis of of King Saul. Gideon was convinced he wasn't spiritually competent. He wasn't spiritually capable. He didn't have a lot going for him spiritually. And so God comes to him and Gideon says, no thanks. Gideon is reluctant to plug in to ministry. He's slow to plug into ministry. As a matter of fact, when God presses him, he hides and runs from God. That's the way so many of us are. God, you know, let them do it because they're gifted and and I'm not when it comes to the, the kingdom of God. Now, some of you are Saul's and some of you are Gideon's. But both of you have fallen into the same trap just from opposite ends. And the trap is you are overly focused on your set of circumstances, your abilities, who you are, either your giftedness or your lack of giftedness. And so if you are here and you find yourself to be like a Gideon, reluctant to plug into ministry, not sure you have much to offer, let me uh, remind you, the argument here is it's not your gifts, it's your godliness that's expressed in love. That matters. Let me encourage you to pursue godliness because you are going to be amazed at how the living God is going to use you. I mean, after all, he sent his son for you. So here's my point. My point is no one loves you like Jesus. And to the extent we see and comprehend uh, the beauty and the majesty and uh, just how flat awesome God's love for me is, for you is, then we will begin to take steps down the road called love. And that's when you will thrive. And that's when Wheaton Bible Church will thrive. Let's pray. So, Father, we come to you and we praise you and we thank you for all you have given us in your Son. We honor you and we exalt you and ask that you would work and you would draw us to Jesus. And we marvel at your grace. In Jesus' name, 
we pray. Amen. Let's stand. morning. My name is John Walker, and it is my honor to serve as chairman of your elder board. Today, we have an important uh, update on our journey together as a church. As you recall, in March of 2020, Pastor Rob announced to the congregation his intention to retire from his role as senior pastor effective this year. In June of last year, we launched our search for our next senior pastor, a leader who, would deeply, who deeply loves God, who will deeply love us, and whom we will deeply love in return. The commitment of the search committee and the elder board has been to faithfully seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit in this important undertaking, supported by your prayers for wisdom, peace, and unity.
It has been exciting to see God working in our hearts and in this process and through this process to bring us his provision in his timing. Now, there has been some turbulence along the way, and God has opened doors, and God has shut some doors. I'm happy to announce that the search committee and the elder board are completely of one heart, one mind, and one voice in recommending to the congregation of Wheaton Bible Church that we call Hannibal Rodriguez as our next senior pastor. Look at, turn around and look at this. Of course, we want you to join us in the next steps of this journey. At this time, Jim gets chairman of our search committee will outline those next steps and how you can participate. And this will be followed by a word from Pastor Hannibal, and then Pastor Rob will lead us in prayer. As we consider our next steps uh, together as, as a church, we want to praise God for his sovereignty and, and his provision. You know, we want to look back at, at, at God's faithfulness. We want to praise God for the faithfulness of, of Rob in his 27 years now of, of ministry. Uh, which will come to an end, Rob. Uh, uh, we also want to uh, praise God uh, deeply and richly for our staff. This has been a crazy year in America, in our church, and for our staff. We want to praise God for their faithfulness, their giftedness. We also want to uh, praise God this morning for the work of your elders, your search committee, and our lay coalition. Uh, they have so faithfully considered where God is leading us. We have prayed for wisdom. We have prayed for peace. We prayed for unity. And we praise God for what he has provided in that. You will want to hear their testimonies. Pick your elder. Pick your lay coalition member. Pick your search committee member. Get their testimony here in this journey. We praise God for that. And we praise God for your faithfulness, your prayer. We, we particularly, as we, we uh, took curves in the road, uh, sometimes I, I say we took a curveball to the nose. Uh, as we considered God's direction, uh, we so appreciated uh, your prayer. And we especially are grateful for God's leading in Hanbel's heart and Heidi's heart, bringing them together as a couple, bringing them to the call to be our senior pastor. So we're praising God. Now, we ask you all to join in our next steps together. We hope these are really big steps that reflect God's love and God's power in our midst. And step number one, May 7th, uh, we're going to have a night 
where we interview Hannibal and Heidi. This is going to be a blast, we think. Uh, so come here uh, 7.30, May, May 7th, uh, and we're going to have just an, a fun time of interaction. We're going to invite everyone. You will need to register, but we're going to invite everyone in, in the church to that. This is a big place, and we hope many people can make it. That will be followed by an all-church prayer night on May 12th. That will be at 7.30 uh, here. Uh, also, we will have two town hall meetings, one on Tuesday, May 11th, and one on Thursday, May 13th. That is followed by the congregational vote, and if there's uh, one date we want you to lock in, it's May 16th. We are recommending, as your elders and as the search committee, we are recommending Hannibal and Heidi serve. It is your prayer and is your decision. We will offer absentee ballots and we will offer um, uh, the in-person meeting. We hope many of you are able to make it to that meeting on May 16th where we consider God's call. All of that will lead to a uh, Sunday of transition. Uh, at the beginning of August, Lord willing, with your support, Hannibal would assume uh, the role of senior pastor at, at Wheaton Bible Church. All of this will be shared with you in a letter and an email this week. We are very, very grateful for what God has done. We're grateful for your joining us in this journey. Please join in all ways uh, you can. And now I will try to get out of the way a few words from Hannibal. Um, it has been my honor and the privilege to serve the church for a little bit more than 16 years. Both my daughters grew up here. Um, my wife and I have grown in this church uh, since the first moment we arrived here. Uh, it is in this church that we have found an amazing community. We have our best friends part of this church. Our families are part of the church. We have been able to see the power of the gospel time and time again being displayed in this church. We have been able to see the, the presence and the ministry of the Spirit moving in this place time and time again. It has been a blessing for me to be part of this amazing team uh, that is, is part of the staff that loves the church and loves people. Uh, it has been a blessing for me to see uh, what, the, what the Lord has been doing in our church throughout the last all these years, uh, how he has been our shelter and our fortress in times of trouble, how he has been present with us in the little things and in the big things that the Lord has allowed us to do. Uh, I have been able to see his faithfulness and his power in everything that he does in and through you. Uh, it's amazing for me to see what the Lord has been doing in our church through broken people like you and me, like Rob was saying today, all for his glory. Now, because all of that, if this is what the Lord has for me, and if you as a congregation choose to vote for me, <laughs> I would step into this trusting. Trusting that God is sovereign, good, powerful, and loving. Trusting that he will complete what he has already started with us. Trusting that the success of this church does not depend on the craftiness of men, but in the power of the gospel and the presence of the Spirit. Trusting that the Lord loves his church more than any of us loves this church. Trusting, that, trusting the inerrancy and the sufficiency of the scripture. Trusting that he has placed us here in this location for the glory of his name and the joy 
our joy and the, and the well-being of other people, trusting that we have everything that is required for us to be successful, if this is what the Lord has for me, and the congregation chooses to vote for me. It will be my honor to serve the church to the best of my abilities, to exercise sacrificial love, to be a servant and a leader, to be a pastor and a friend to the best of my abilities, and to be a team player for the glory of his name. Amen. So let's gather together. Why don't you guys step up? Would you join me as we pray for Hannibal and Heidi now? Father, we marvel at your love. We marvel at your grace and how you have brought us to this point. This is such an important moment in uh, Wheaton Bible Church's ministry, and we ask God that this would be an incredibly wonderful moment. And over these months of transition, over these years of Hannibal's ministry, that the gospel will flourish by the power of the Spirit, that we will see Jesus more and more clearly, that you will calm their hearts, you will give them wisdom and discernment, that they will run the race in a way that is extraordinarily fruitful. Father, we know that Hannibal and Heidi aren't equal to this. Uh, I'm not equal to this. We know that we are dependent upon you, that dependent upon the grace of God in our hearts. I pray for that grace in abundance for this dear couple and their two daughters. We ask that you will do things in the months and years ahead here at the church that will glorify you, that people will come to Christ. Large numbers of people will come to Christ. People will be discipled. That we will look back and, and look at this moment and say, wow, God, did you do something amazing. We thank you for Hannibal. We thank you for Heidi. We thank you for this opportunity. I've had to work so closely with him for so many years. And uh, just what a sweet and uh, godly and smart and a deeply rooted man he is. Bless him. I know, God, you have great things in store for him and for them. And so we commit them to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you, guys. May God give you a great day in Jesus Christ. I'm not sure you want to say it.